Earth Matters would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast today. Earth Matters pays respects to elders past and present of the Kulin Nations and recognise their unceded sovereignty. Hello, you're listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network with Idwin. This week we're talking plastic, the all-encompassing waste problem that's swallowing up our land and oceans. Here in Australia, plastic waste is a huge problem. One million tonnes of Australia's annual plastic consumption is single-use plastic. 84% of it is sent to landfill, and only 13% is recycled. On today's episode, we're going to be looking at two solutions to the plastic problem. First up on the show, we'll be chatting to Robert, who is a campaigner from community volunteer group Cash for Containers Victoria, talking about container deposit schemes. This is the policy where a 10-cent refund is given for every eligible drink container, can, carton or bottle returned to a refund collection point. The policy itself is quite old, stretching back to the 70s and even in iterations prior to that. And yet somehow it's taken till 2022 and 2023 for Tasmania and Victoria to get on board. We'll be chatting to Robert about why it's taken so long to implement and what the deposit scheme hopes to add to recycling infrastructure in the state. Later in the show, we'll be talking with Amira Fazana-Samat, a PhD student at the University of Sydney. Amira recently co-authored a paper that found that two strains of common fungi can be used to successfully biodegrade polypropylene. Polypropylene being the material used in a lot of soft plastics, such as cling wrap and bottle caps that are notoriously difficult to recycle. We'll be chatting to Amira about this amazing new discovery and what it could mean for addressing plastic waste that can't be recycled. But for now, we'll jump into our conversation with Hobbit. Robert, my first question today is sort of broader context on recycling in Victoria. So the Victorian government is pursuing a circular economy model. Could you give us an insight to what that means for plastic waste currently and then also what the container scheme hopes to add to the system? Um, yeah, look, great question. Um, I think, first of all, um, you know, in, in its purest, Context: A circular economy is, you know, everything that gets um, used or everything that it comes out the end of a, a, a consumption process gets put back into the system um, for reuse. Um, that's that's certainly my understanding. Um, where we are at in terms of plastic, um, more broadly, is a long, 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 long way from there. Um, I think with our container deposit scheme, um, about eight to ten percent of plastic bottles were recycled. Um, the rest, too, typically went to landfill. Um, in terms of soft plastic, the number is significantly lower. Two to three percent, I think, of soft plastic was actually recycled before Red Cycle took a bit of a nosedive and and. Um, uh, you know, and, and we had then the 
the issue of you know tons and tons of soft plastic waste sitting in warehouses and and causing all sorts of environmental issues, including a couple of fires. I think went through a couple of facilities and um, yeah. So in terms of where Victoria sits in terms of a circular economy for plastic, um, a lot of work to do. Mm. Really interesting. And look. We were sort of talking about um, container schemes across Australia. Now, South Australia's got the longest-running scheme that's been going since the 70s. I think it celebrated its 40th anniversary in 2017. Yeah. The question is, what's taken Victoria so long to adopt this policy or re-adopt this policy? Uh, um, look, I, I, I don't know the specific details of this, so I'm sort of paraphrasing a little bit. There, there's... I think there was a, a fair amount of reluctance or resistance from the major drink companies. Without trying to get myself into too much trouble <laughs> here, I guess, um, they just didn't want it. Yeah. Um, and they've resisted it and resisted it and resisted it. And um, uh, I guess I might get myself into trouble with this one, but, you know, the only thing that politicians understand more than... than undisclosed political donations is votes and I suspect there might have been some um, political donations heading towards both parties to um, uh, you know I guess um, uh, reduce their interest in introducing a container deposit scheme mm. I know it's, that. it's definitely Victoria and Tasmania that sort of held out the longest yeah. against this scheme you're telling me actually that we Victoria used to have a scheme going is that correct? Yeah, look, I think my understanding is every state in Australia had one back in the 70s. I mean, it was a, um, I'm guessing a little bit. I know certainly know, know that New South Wales did, and I grew up in New South Wales. And, you know, that's a, remember running around, you know, on the hill at the footy, picking up <laughs> cans and bottles and things to take them to recycling. You know, so there was certainly, um, you know, cash for cans. Um, and my understanding is Victoria had it, yep. What's your experience been like as sort of a volunteer-based group advocating for this issue and sort of talking to government on this issue? What's the what's that been like? Oh, look, I, I, I might put this in a little bit of historical context mm-hmm. about where we started and and where catch for you know container deposits came came into things. Um, I got involved probably about ten or twelve years ago um, in the broader plastic pollution. Uh, sort of campaigning and and I was um, <laughs> actually walking out of the supermarket one day and myself and my wife had our you know reusable cloth bags with us and, mm-hmm. and I was just having a whinge about oh, I can't <laughs> understand why so many people are still taking you know these single-use singlet plastic bags and it's just so bad for the economy and, and she said to me <laughs> baby stop complaining get off your ass and do something <laughs> about it because I'm sick of hearing your whinge <laughs> um so I got together with a, a couple of other groups and we had a, a meeting with the um, uh, then Environment Minister, Lisa Neville, and Lisa is, if nothing, um, staunch in her views. Um, we had three issues on the on the table, one of which was container deposit scheme, one of which was single-use plastic bags, and um, uh, we sort of gave her our agenda, which she had previously, and she just got a line through cash for containers. Mm. Um, Didn't even talk about it. It was never even mentioned. Um, We moved on to plastic bags, and she said, not on our radar. Um, But look, you know, if you want to make some noise about it, we'll 
come back in 12 months and we'll have, have another chat about it. And that was the end of any conversations about plastic. So we had a bit of a debrief and we thought, well, plastic bags has got more of a chance than cash for containers at this point in time. So we um, uh, put effort into um, advocating for a ban on single-use plastic bags, the singlet types that the supermarkets used to hand out. Um, and we developed a strategy around bringing together as many um, environmental groups or groups that were interested in this issue or the issue of plastic pollution as we could to, as the Minister suggested, we do make some noise. Mm-hmm. Um, so we had you know, letter-writing campaigns to local members and um, I think we had pretty much every electorate in Victoria covered by the time we'd finished, which led to a parliamentary inquiry, um, which led to... Um, ultimately led to the ban on single-use plastic bags. Um, that then followed or overlapped a bit with, um, uh, you know, cash for containers campaign because once the momentum sort of got going, we um, we turned our attention to um, cash for containers, which was surprisingly quick, um, considering the the reluctance or the, or the time frames involved in, in the plastic bag campaign. Interesting. Um, it was really... And I think there was already momentum from other states which was then putting pressure on um, Victorian government to, you know, if you like, align um, or harmonise the, mm-hmm. the, um, the initiatives with the other states. Because I, I think the, the packaging companies obviously didn't want to, um, you know, have different arrangements in different states, you know, and I think they saw the writing on the wall and, and moved forward with um, perhaps um, uh, reducing their re- resistance. Mm. And I know there's a couple of different models, you know, each state's got its own sort of working model. Um, yeah. Last I heard of the container scheme was 2021 and it was facing criticism at the time for sort of prioritising profits of larger private waste companies without yep. sort of a community access or focus. I, I note that the policy we've gone with or that the Victorian government's proposing to introduce in November does allow for community groups to have collection points and collection drives. From from where you guys are standing, does it look like the policy we've ended up with will have this community focus? Oh, to some extent. Um, look, and, and there's others that have been a, a little bit more in, into the detail of the um, actual policy than myself. Um, look, I can I can talk to um, where New South Wales landed a little bit mm-hmm. because I was um, up in New South Wales soon after they introduced the scheme up there a few years ago, and there was certainly at football grounds, you know, community football grounds, surf life saving clubs. There was a lot of you know very large cages where people could um, uh, deposit containers for yep. collection by the clubs and therefore um, fundraising initiatives for the clubs. Um, and, and they had, I think the, the model is not dissimilar. I mean, I think there's some tweaks. Um, but, you know, let, let's hope so, I guess. is the um, And look, it depends a little bit on, on the clubs or the community groups um, and how they go about it as well. I just also want to ask, you know, the scheme is going to be run by private companies, uh, Vic Return, Vizzy, Tomra, Cleanway and Return It. That's four different private entities. 
Um, Vic Return is a non-for-profit entity that includes beverage industry members like Lion, Coca-Cola, your specific partners, Ashi uh, Beverages. Is that something that you guys are sort of keeping an eye on or concerned about a conflict of interest with these groups? Oh, yeah. (laughs) Again, it's not quite the fox in the hen house, but it sort of does. It does lend itself to a little bit of manipulation or, or internal um, influence, I guess. Yeah, look, we'll be we'll be keeping an eye on you know as it gets closer and as it rolls into um, actual rollout where it's at, and we'll you know we we try to keep the um, the conversations open with the, the relevant departments and our local members and that sort of thing, and try to you know make sure they're aware we're still still got a bit of an eye on things, and you know there's a lot of momentum around this issue. We'll definitely have to check back in with you perhaps in November, December of this year when the policy is uh, released and see how it's going and and what the public access is like to this scheme. That's going to be the big ticket item is, you know, where where access points are because it's, um, uh, you know, people will still have a... um, you know, if they're going to get twenty dollars for depositing some um, containers, they don't want to spend twenty dollars in petrol um, or you know three dollars worth of electricity um, to get there to deposit. Plus, plus a you know bunch of time. And again, this is where say the community groups can really come in and have those collect local collection points and and have um, you know systems set up where they can get um, you know the containers to the to the refund points. And that was Robert from volunteer organisation group Cash for Containers uh, talking about Victoria's plan to introduce a cash for container deposit scheme in November of this year. Robert is correct. Uh, Victoria has previously had a container deposit scheme in the 1980s called Cash for Cans. But this was rescinded in 1989, according to Friends of the Earth. You're listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network, and I'm Eidwin. Coming up next is Amira Fazana Samat, who will be talking about a discovery she was part of recently of two microfungi species that can help biodegrade plastics. Now, just a couple of points on lingo. Biodegrade here means the process of decomposing a material. It does not mean to fully mineralize, which is the act of complete biodegradation, to convert organic matter wholly or partly into a mineral or inorganic material or structure. The discovery we're chatting about today is the first step of the biodegrading process. So we'll jump into our interview now with Amira introducing the names of the two fungi at the centre of this discovery. The two that we have published are Aspergillus terrius, mm-hmm. and the other one is Angiodontium album. The second one is quite hard to pronounce. <laughs> <laughs> when we uh, talk about fungi, what what is fungi, and how does it differ from sort of other organisms? Oh, okay. So uh, basically, uh, fungi is um, one type of microorganism that are actually abundant in us. 
We have bacteria, we have algae, so fungi is one of them. And um, basically for, uh, for our research, we call it a microfungi because uh, it can only be viewed by microscope. It is a very small size. But we also have a different kind of fungi, which we call macrofungi, uh, which the one that we can see and we can eat. So that's the difference. So in, in my case, we utilize a microfungi, a small kind of fungi. And the discovery you guys have found is that this microfungi can help biodegrade um, polypropylene, which is a specific type yeah. of plastic. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, that's the soft packaging we get in pre-washed salads and stuff like that, and bottle caps, is that correct? Um, yes, polypropylene can be in many types of um, containers. Yeah, they can be in a form of soft plastic, and it can be in a hard plastic, like uh, the water bottle cap that uh, we usually have in the in the supermarket. Uh, the polypropylene that we tested, uh, we did use two, two forms. We have uh, polypropylene film, which is a soft plastic, and we have the hard plastic the, in the form of granule, like a pallet. So that represents the hard types of polypropylene. Gotcha. And so getting down to sort of the discovery, how does this process of using microfunky to, to biodegrade this plastic work? So um, what we did is actually quite um, fundamental. Um, the whole process is uh, we use the small um, flask, like a mini bioreactor. So we put um, all of the supplementary uh, growth media for the fungi, but we avoid uh, the addition of carbon salts. And then we add the plastic. And we actually want the fungi to use the plastic as they are carbon source because we know that every living organism needs carbon as an energy source. So in a way, we want the fungi to feed on the plastic instead of using it from the other source in the growth media. So after um, a few days, you know, not really a few days, like 30, 60, <laughs> and 90 days, we go up until 90 days, and then we harvest the plastic from the media and then we weigh them to see how much has been consumed or degraded by the fungi. And other than that, we also did like some sort of test to see any chemical uh, structure changes on the plastic. And we also did um, scanning electro-microscopy tests to see whether there are any changes on the surface of the plastic. And we did find that um, the the fungi did uh, act on the plastic, that we found a lot of changes, a lot of um, um, content that has been degraded by the fungi. And when we talk about, you know, it being degraded by the fungi, is that fully degraded or mineralized? Um, What's the final byproduct? Um, Okay, so... Um, since our test duration is only 90 days, we found that um, we get like a smaller size of plastic. In other words, uh, maybe microplastic or nanoplastic. And the, and the byproducts is mostly like shorter chain of the polymer. And um, uh, we haven't tested like to the extent that 
whether this has been fully mineralized by the fungi. Because uh, in theory, we know that uh, it can be mineralized because uh, if um, we found that they can uh, they can degrade it into smaller um, poly- uh, polymer chains, it means that they can absorb it and mineralize it. But um, unfortunately, we, ha- we haven't done it. We haven't tested mm-hmm. up until that point. So is that the sort of next stage in your research or, or sort of looking at this sort of full biodegraded process? Uh, yeah, it w- we, we are expected to, to do until up to that point. But, uh, yeah, we're still, we're still in a process where we want to, to optimise the process. Uh, where we want to actually achieve a higher degradation rate first mm-hmm. before looking into the metabolism of the fungi. And this is sort of more of a layman's question, but mm-hmm. when the plastic feeds on, sorry, when the fungi feeds on the plastic, I should say, um, mm-hmm. does it harm the, the fungi or where, where do the toxins and the chemicals from the plastic go exactly? Oh, okay, that's a good question. Because um, the polypropylene that we test in the lab mm-hmm. um, actually comes from the manufacturer where uh, we basically know the content of the plastic. Uh, oh. They did use like some sort of additive and stuff, but they are non-toxic. Mm. We know that they are non-toxic. And from, from the result that we got, like the, the end product of the degradation that I've tested, we found that uh, those elements are not toxic to the environment. But um, if we are to test like a commercial plastic, commercial polypropylene or um, or commercial uh, polyethylene or other types of plastic, we might get some toxic products, byproducts, because we know that um, polyethylene, terephthalate, the PET, do have um, uh, toxic additives into it when uh, uh, the process of making PET. Uh, so in that case, there might be uh, toxic byproducts. But mm. in our case, for, for the polypropylene that we test in the lab, it's safe to say that uh, there's no toxic byproducts. And it is, it is ideal if we could actually like uh, fully degrade them and for the fungi to actually mineralize them. But uh, from what we have test in the lab, we actually did um, test um, the fungal growth, you know, from 30, 60 to mm-hmm. 90 days, mm-hmm. because we want to see whether they are growing or not. And we found that after 90 days, the fungi is growing, and the biomass of the fungi is increasing. So we know that they are able to live and eat this plastic without any problem so far. And so if we were to scale this up to to be part of Australia's waste management system, what would uh-huh. a scaled-up version of this look like? Obviously, it's still very early days. But what we are trying to tackle here is those that aren't recycled, mm. that, that weren't managed to, to get into the recycling facilities that are being... Um, thrown away in the oceans or that are accumulating in landfills. So we are we are probably looking into um, setting up a scale-up system 
that can help um, the waste management facilities, like uh, maybe landfill facilities or some sort. So um, uh, my supervisor and I and I we actually have discussed on on um, producing a lab scale or a pilot scale process for this system. So basically, we want to maybe um, produce a bioreactor with all of the pretreatments and all of the fungi involved in one system. And um, if this works, then we can try to implement it into a waste management facility. But yeah, it is it is in very early days. We haven't really <laughs> gone through it yet in detail. Yeah. Yeah. Very fair enough. Um, and I was just wondering: is there any is there any potential? Again, layman's question, but any potential risk of using fungi in this in this way in in a large scale? I know we've like thought about like fungal risk to agriculture and sort of mm-hmm. anything out of uh, out of balance. So, is there any risk there? Okay, so for the two fungi that we are using, like Aspergillus and Epidontium, we know that these are non-pathogenic, means that it won't cause um, harm to the human or to animals except for those who have autoimmune disease or something like that. Mm. But we know that all fungi will have that same effect. Most of the fungi that produce spores will have that effect. But uh, for these two fungi, it it is safe to say that um, it won't harm the environment because these two fungi uh, can also be found in soil, on plant surface. So it is basically... From the environment, we haven't we haven't done any um, genetic modification on this fungi yet. <laughs> Interesting. Well, thank you so much, Amira, yeah. for coming on and talking a little bit more about the research. It's no a really exciting d- discovery. So, yeah, thanks very much for that. No worries. No worries. I mean, um, we are also excited to see how much this can go because since we haven't optimized the process yet. So I think that we can get like a higher degradation rate than what we already have now. So yeah, we're looking forward to that. <laughs> well, we'll have to check back in with you in a year or so and see see how you guys yeah. are going. <laughs> yeah, yes, please do. You've been listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network with Idwin. Today on the show, we heard from Robert from Cash for Containers Victoria. You can find out more on their Facebook page, which is named after the group. We also heard from Amira Fazana Samat from the University of Sydney, discussing the use of microfungi as a step in biodegrading soft plastics. I will attach the paper that Amira co-authored in relation to this discovery to today's episode, but you can also find out more by heading to the University of Sydney's website. Earth Matters would like to thank the Community Radio Network for all their hard work in broadcasting today's episode and the Community Broadcasting Foundation for their generous financial support. Earth Matters is produced at 3CR Community Radio in Fitzroy, Melbourne and we can be contacted at earthmatters3cr at gmail.com. That's all for now, but tune in next week for more environmental and social justice stories. Thank you.